edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 19th of February 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, we'll be crossing over to Kiev, where Ilya Chandra, editor-in-chief of Euromaidan Press, gives us the latest on the situation there. Charles Hecker of Control Risks joins me to chat through the day's front pages, plus Andrew Muller recaps the week. We learned that Scott Morrison has no sense of humour. If he did, he'd have issued a statement decrying the cynicism of a rock band trying to co-opt politics when they have a tour coming up. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. US President Joe Biden said on Friday he believes Russia's Vladimir Putin has decided to invade Ukraine within days, after separatists backed by Moscow told civilians to leave breakaway regions on buses, a move the West fears is part of a pretext for an attack. Today, Russia rejected US allegations that it was responsible for cyber attacks on Ukrainian banking and government websites. Meanwhile, two new blasts which have been linked to a gas pipeline were heard in the Russian separatist city of Luhansk in eastern Ukraine. Vladimir Putin says he remains willing to discuss the crisis with Western leaders, but accused them of ignoring Russia's security concerns. In Canada, police, some on horseback, pushed into crowds of demonstrators to clear them from the streets of downtown Ottawa on Friday, arresting more than 100 and hauling away vehicles that had been blocking the capital's core for over three weeks in a protest against pandemic restrictions. Authorities said it may take days to fully remove the protesters and the tractor-trailer trucks that have occupied Ottawa's streets since January the 28th. And an Atlantic storm has battered northwestern Europe with record winds of up to 196 kilometres per hour, killing at least eight people, knocking out power for tens of thousands and shredding the roof of London's O2 arena. In the Netherlands, three people were killed by toppled trees and in Belgium, strong winds brought a crane down onto the roof of a hospital. Scientists said the Atlantic storm's tail could pack a sting jet, a rarely seen meteorological phenomenon that brought havoc to Britain and northern France in the great storm of 1987. I'm Georgina Godwin and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, we'll be looking at all of those stories in more detail in a moment with Charles Hecker from Control Risks, who's with me. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, I am going to leave you to enjoy your wonderful coffee from our Chiltern Street Cafe, plus your cinnamon bun. <laughs> cinnamon bun has already been demolished, <laughs> joyfully. Uh, uh, while I speak to Alia Chandra, she is editor-in-chief of Euromaidan Press in Kiev, and we join her there now. Alia, thanks so much for coming on the programme. Uh, yesterday, Joe Biden gave a speech saying he believes that a Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent. What's been the reaction to that within Ukraine? Um, well, in Ukraine, actually, the reaction has been to other events because um, uh, yesterday there was a big escalation on the fronts. And um, um, so uh, 
I must say that Ukrainians didn't really, I guess, notice Joe Biden's words. But um, for me personally, they are very troubling, given this immense escalation and propaganda campaign that has been taking place in the East uh, in the last two days. Um, and of course, it looks, it does appear like the so-called um, republics, Russia's puppet states and Ukraine's Donbass are searching for a pretext to start uh, an escalation. Um, so as as of now, the situation is very uncertain and very troubling. Um, yeah. Can you tell us what's happened over the last sort of 24 hours or so? So in the last 24 hours, um, the escalation has continued. Um, the, Russian, uh, the, um, the Russian puppet republics have ordered an evacuation of civilians. And they are alleging that Ukraine is going to attack the republics, which is really, I think President Biden um, underlined this in yesterday's talk, that it's really absurd to imagine that Ukraine would try to do any sort of offensive given this vast amount of Russian troops on the border. But nevertheless, that is the narrative that Ukraine is going to invade. And um, Russia is also spinning allegations. Um, that they have this like pervasive narrative of genocide. They accuse Ukraine of conducting genocide against their own people, even though there is no, there are no, there is no proof of this. <laughs> and um, it's really like when Ukraine liberated the lands in Donbas, there was nothing akin to genocide. The real genocide is happening on the occupied territories. But nevertheless, in line with this narrative and this alternative reality. Um, the republics, so-called republics, are spinning um, more stories, creating more fakes, like, for instance, with this evacuation. And um, also there has been a sort of um, accusations of an explosion on um, a gas pot pipeline, and they have claimed that it is Ukrainian saboteurs have done this. Um, there have been alleged arrests of Ukrainian saboteurs also planning an attack. And some of them sick. <laughs> they were speaking Polish. So this is also invoking a long-standing narrative that it is the West that is attacking Russia, and it, the Western help for Ukraine is dangerous and aggressive. And um, uh, so uh, today I see that um, that the leaders of these Russian puppet republics are accusing Ukraine. That thing because of the shelling of that Ukraine is conducting, um, the settlements in occupied Donbas can be left without water. Um, so we can see that there's uh, there there's sort of like this information ground being prepared to show Ukraine as this aggressive state that that is just posed to harm civilians on these territories. And this is absolutely divorced from reality, but and we, it, it can be seen as a pretext for upcoming military action. And I understand there's been a, another cyber attack. Mm. Another cyber attack. Um, let me see. I actually don't see another cyber attack. The one that happened a few days ago, um, the Russia, uh, I mean, uh, the United States has identified that the Russian GRU um, has stood behind it. But actually, I do not see any other cyber attacks happening. Since oh, and how are people reacting to all of this on the ground now? I mean, over the last few weeks, we've been talking to people in Kiev who are saying, actually, we're much more concerned about other day-to-day -day realities. But is this now of pressing concern? Um, well, you know, um, 
for me personally, I I can understand why people are more concerned with pressing realities because it it does appear as if we live in two parallel realities at the same time. In one reality, we go on with our jobs and day-to-day -day needs, and then the other reality, there is just this this terrible information operation unraveling and these troops on the borders. And I sometimes feel like I'm just coexisting in two realities. Um, so, uh, well, my friends personally, I know that um, the, the latest sociological polls show that Ukrainians are not as convinced that Russia will conduct a full-scale invasion. So they are having more confidence in the Ukrainian army and they are panicking less. Um, this is according to the latest polls. Um, I know that, I, I guess that the people who are panicking, they have already left for some other place, maybe further west of the country. But um, from what I see, most people just choose to prepare in any way that they can, attend some training uh, for the territorial defense forces, gather their their um, suitcases uh, with the stuff that they need most of all. Um, and so, but I would say that that's, the situation is very troubling for me personally right now. It's very, it, it is really unclear what will happen next. Ayla, thank you very much indeed. That's Ayla Chandra, who's editor-in-chief of Euromaidan Press in Kiev. Well, Charles Hecker from Control Risk is still with me. Charles is a fluent Russian speaker and obviously a, a Russian analyst. Uh, Charles, what, what, are, what are you seeing in the papers about all of this? Well, I mean, a lot of what Alia said really resonated with me, specifically, uh, you know, her notion about living in two realities and describing that on the one hand, Ukrainians are sort of getting on with their life and doing the things that they do every day, while at the same time, um, the other half of their brain is occupied by the fact that they are now the subject of you know, the greatest tension on the European continent um, in, you know, a couple of decades. And what we see, one of the drivers of that tension is what we see in the New York Times today. Um, and this is the lead story in the paper. It's splashed across the front page and it takes the prominent position on the website edition. And it says, Biden says Putin has chosen catastrophic war over diplomacy. And what U.S. President Joe Biden has done is he has essentially planted a flag in the ground and said he believes now concretely and, and down to sort of specific timings that President Putin has decided to invade Ukraine militarily. Moreover, He's saying that part of this plan is to take the capital, Kiev. And, you know, Alia also mentioned in her remarks this, this information war. And, you know, it's, it's not doing much to help the situation, particularly in Ukraine. And, you know, people talk all the time about how is President Putin ever going to back down from this? Um, you know, he's, he's moved his troops around the border. He's surrounded the country. He's launching cyber attacks. He's, he's escalating in Donbass. How does he ever back down and save face? Um, so I think you have to th think about two things in this. Number one is that Putin is much less concerned about those sorts of issues, particularly domestically, than people think he is, number one. Number two, he doesn't have to save face. He can leave everything exactly where it is for a much longer time than any of us think. Mm. You know, one of the ways that we're formulating this is that this tension could last all year long. It's Biden 
by making these incredibly specific proclamations about invasion, who I think has to worry more about saving face. And people are saying, of course, that the, the, one of the narratives is it's not a Ukraine crisis, it's a Russia crisis. That's right. Um, although here's what's happening. It is a Russia crisis because Russia is clearly the aggressor here. Ukraine presents absolutely, at the moment, Ukraine, and, and in perpetuity, frankly, Ukraine presents absolutely no threat to Russia. Um, what's happening, though, is that Putin, by doing what he's doing now, without stepping foot in Ukraine, has already destabilized the country significantly. Uh, and so he doesn't have to invade to do whatever damage that he wants to do to Ukraine. It's not all gloom and doom in Europe, though. Um, uh, I mean, how could it be when we have Eurovision? Here's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that inane Eurovision controversy season seems to have started early. A full 80 days or so until the pan-continental warbling tournament gets properly underway, we learned that it was all kicking off over this. This specifically being Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, winner of the competition to represent Ukraine at this year's Eurovision. The issue we learned is not so much the song itself, but the singer thereof, Alina Pash. An amount of uproar... Come on, let's have an amount of uproar. An amount of uproar, probably broadly similar to that, has erupted over reports that Ms Pash visited Crimea in 2015, which, as some have chosen to see, it counts as an endorsement of Russia's seizure and annexation of the peninsula the year before. The amount of uproar was, we learned, precisely the amount necessary to persuade her to withdraw from Eurovision. Ukraine, which might be thought to have more pressing concerns, has an amount of form for such brouhaha's. Or bruise-ha-ha, we've never figured out which is right. Our more friendless and unemployable listeners may recall that controversy erupted over Ukraine's 2019 entrant Maruv and her plans to tour Russia. She too withdrew. And if only Russia would follow her example, am I right? You should probably be braced for or resigned to the fact that suboptimal popular music is going to be something of a recurring theme of this week's monologue. And fair enough. But one of the stories is one of those ones where a politician deploys a particular artist's music in an ill-advised bid to look cool and then gets yelled at by the artist in question, and those are always fun. Because we learned that Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has not heard the joke about the definition of a gentleman being someone who can play the ukulele, but doesn't. Take me to the April sun in Cuba. Oh. Take me to the April sun in Cuba. I can't remember the words. It is possible that non-Antipodean listeners would not recognise the song, but then it's possible that listeners anywhere wouldn't have recognised their own names if rendered in Morrison's maladroit strumming. The song is April Sun in Cuba, a 1977 hit in Australia for the New Zealand band Dragon, and it goes like this.
mentioned that Dragon were unimpressed with Scott Morrison's version of their song and with Scott Morrison generally. Dragon issued a statement. Settle down, part of which will now be read with due solemnity by Monocle 24's indignant has been's desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It is a cynical move for a politician to co opt music in an attempt to humanize themselves come election time. And we learn that Scott Morrison has no sense of humor. If he did, he'd have issued a statement decrying the cynicism of a rock band trying to co-opt politics when they have a tour coming up. Next gig, February 25th, Lizotte's Dinner Show Restaurant in Newcastle. Still seem to be tickets available. Happy to help. We learned, as cunningly foreshadowed earlier, that this had been quite the week for the crossover of political silliness and musical terribleness. In New Zealand, authorities became tired of an encampment of tedious dingbats established outside the Parliament building in Wellington to protest. Actually, no. We simply, we simply don't, don't care. care. Police attempted to disperse the pestilential morons by berating them with incessant broadcasts of the dismal pop stylings of Barry Manilow. And this. Yeah, righto. And if we must. For we learned that among those sharing the global amusement at this spectacle was lamentable British dirge writer James Blunt, whose redeeming grace is appearing to hold his own works in even lower esteem than does any right-thinking citizen. Blunt tweeted that New Zealand's police should give him a shout if even Manilow wouldn't scatter the malcontents, and received the following reply from Trevor Mallard, Speaker of New Zealand's Parliament, as will be read in the appropriate accent by Monocle's Aotearoa Affairs desk chief, David Stevens. We will take you up on your very kind offer. My only doubt is whether it's fair to our police officers, but I think they'll be able to cope. An uncanny impersonation of the New Zealand House Speaker there, and if it isn't, who'd know? If even James Blunt doesn't shift the protesters, Monocle 24 offers the option of one of Fernando Augusto Pacheco's global countdowns. Hey! Every Thursday on The Briefing. And we learned this week of an irreplaceable loss in the ranks of takers of wry sidelong looks at the news with the passing of the great American satirist P.J. O'Rourke, late of National Lampoon, Rolling Stone and The Atlantic, among other journals, at the age of 74. Anyone who has read PJ's books already knows that he was a genuine heir to Mark Twain and H.L. Mencken in the pantheon of American humorists. Anyone who hasn't has a treat awaiting them. For all that PJ made his name and his living as a liberal-baiting conservative curmudgeon, when away from the keyboard he was a wise, thoughtful and surprisingly compassionate humanist, his always evolving view of the world honed by hard-earned experience in the field. The very least he deserves is the honour of playing us out this week. This is PJ O'Rourke speaking to Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk in late 2020. Well, I think, yeah, I think one, you know, life experience, you can speak to this. I mean, life experience gets, 
the anarchistic and nihilistic point of view that is common at the end of the teens and the beginning of the 20s and on for those of us who matured very late, reality will shake you out of that. I mean, anybody who tells me they're an anarchist, I'll invite them to revisit Mogadishu with me. Let me show you what anarchy, you know, really means, you know. And on the other hand, the sort of like armed nitwit Trump supporters, and there are some armed nitwits on the other side of the violent Antifa types, maybe should have had a little go at Northern Ireland back in the 80s. If you want to see where that road leads, if you want to take that road all the way down to the end of that road, Belfast was an enlightening experience, as were the Balkans and so on. So all that like goes to mitigate one's absolutism and certainly one's anarchism and nihilism. Go well, friend. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Very many thanks there to Andrew. And I wonder what O'Rourke would have made of the absolutism of the anti-vaxxers and the so-called anarchy on the streets of Ottawa. Well, Charles Hecker's still with me. And Charles, of course, this is receiving extensive coverage. Police moved in yesterday and started uh, removing those people. What are the papers saying? That's right. We're going to go to the Toronto Star with some fairly gripping moment-by-moment coverage of police attempts to break up these protests. And the headline says, Ottawa police say over 100 people arrested. Convoy organizer Chris Barber released on bail. Um, That's a pretty staggering number if you've got 100 people dragged off by the police. And, you know, the detail in this coverage is really is really riveting because it talks not only about physically arresting 100 individuals, but what Canadian courts have done is they've had to go into cryptocurrency accounts and freeze them to prevent the protesters from receiving any additional funding. We knew that accounts from Canada and the US and from other parts of the world were transferring currency into Canada. That was initially blocked by the providers. But now the courts have gone into crypto land to try to freeze this money. what the coverage in the Canadian papers also points to really is one of the essential ingredients of, what, of what's happening in Ottawa, and that is the battle over free speech. And the interesting thing here is actually the protesters in Ottawa have lost the support, if they ever had it in the first place, of Canadians. Um, Canadians are no longer behind these these vaccine extremists and the political circus of hangers-on that they've attracted. And I think that free speech, you know, is, you know, the most important principle in democracies. But these folks are turning out to be a real hassle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here is something else that has absolutely transfixed people uh, across Europe. And uh, it's weather related. So it it does actually chime with the the top stories we're we're following today. As we know, uh, Storm Eunice absolutely devastated parts of the UK, uh, but is also stretched wider into Europe. And one of the... uh, um, areas that it really affected was, of course, aviation, with over 400 flights in Britain uh, having to abort their landings. Uh, And many planes did land, but of course landed in quite a spectacular fashion. And uh, documenting this or filming this, as they do a couple of times a week, was Big Jet TV. This is Jerry and Jilly from Big Jet TV. And suddenly... The world was transfixed. Now, I've been watching them for a couple of years, almost two years to the day uh, um, I flew back from Zurich. And the flight I was on had to make four... It landed on the fourth 
attempt. I have never been so frightened in my life. And somebody on the plane showed me the live coverage so you could watch our plane coming, and that's what made it even more scary. There can be too much of the internet at times, <laughs> I think, right? So since then, I've been watching it, and I was very, very pleased to see hundreds of thousands of people joining me yesterday. Tell us more about this. So we go to The Guardian in their coverage of Storm Eunice, and and they say here, and also a big thumping headline, Big Jet TV live streaming of planes landing during Storm Eunice goes viral. And you're absolutely right, Georgina. Um, This guy called Jerry Dyer, who twice a week goes into a field next to runway 27L at Heathrow with a camera and just streams planes landing. Um, He became an international celebrity yesterday with his incredibly passionate narration of of the attempts of these daring pilots in their cockpits trying to land these beasts that are being blown around by the wind. And and, and really, for people who love aviation and for for everybody else, it turned into sort of the Olympics, the World Cup, and the Super Bowl all at once. And and if Dyer doesn't have a book or a movie contract after this, you know, I'll eat my shoes. Uh, It was fantastic. And then at one point, a whole herd of horses came into the paddock, which was just kind of surreal. And he was getting very upset because they dirtied his car. They were licking the bonnet of his car. What's very endearing about Dyer and what was very endearing about yesterday's broadcast is essentially it was open mic. And whatever he was doing, whatever he was seeing, whatever he was talking about, and whoever he was talking to was just there for everybody to listen in on. And and I think that's part of what made it so compelling. It was fantastic. And he was fielding all these calls from the media. He was going, oh, it's Channel 4 on the phone. Jilly, can you just... <laughs> the best part, I think, was when he actually put the BBC on hold. He's like, listen, I'm covering a go around here. I'll get right back to you. <laughs> It was very, very good. So for anybody who hasn't watched Big Jet TV, they're on YouTube and you really should check them out. They've also got, uh, obviously, a Twitter handle and all the rest of the socials going on. But it was great fun. Um, This weather continues, though, doesn't it? Yeah. It's um, First of all, this was not just in the UK. It was all around Europe. And I think one of the big problems uh, yesterday was diverting aircraft and where you could divert them to. And the safest and easiest place to land sometimes was quite a distance away. And in some cases, they turned aircraft back to where they came from. Um, we're expecting a deluge this afternoon here in London. And and frankly, the, the follow-up coverage to all of this that's, that's in the papers and online is how everyone, not just all of us who were battered by this yesterday in the UK, but that all of us have to expect the frequency and the severity of these storms to both increase. Um, and so whether this lingers for the rest of the weekend or now becomes a more permanent feature of, of not just weather, but climate is something we've all got to prepare for. Absolutely. Charles, on that sobering note, thank you very much indeed. Always a pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin, and this show will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.